0: The show is my like baby, like I can show exactly what I want to show. And then there just has to be a bit of extra work to make sure people that don't feel like they want or need to wear the whole embodiment of the narrative of that show and that collection, but they can still get something and feel a part of that story. The work should be interesting but not alienating you know what i mean and enticing but not frightening although sometimes my collections and sometimes my shows are frightening but sometimes i'm <laughs> in a frightening mood but like don't I don't do seem very it,
1: frightening to me i don't know yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> i'm not feeling so scary today <laughs>
1: Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, President of Nordstrom, and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, we're shining a light on one of the most exciting events of the year for our industry, and that's London Fashion Week. We're going to kick off this episode by speaking with someone who certainly knows a lot more about this subject than I do, our women's designer, fashion, and editorial director here at Nordstrom, Ricky DeSole.
2: For me, London is the most creative of all the cities. It's like so in its own spot because the designers sort of aren't following the same direction as everyone else.
1: Ricky is then going to take the helm and chat with Caroline Rush, the CEO of the British Fashion Council, to learn about their role in supporting designers and fashion house's throughout this massive event.
3: It's early mornings, a full day of shows, lots of media interviews and partner interviews along the way. And then we have a whole host of events in the evening. So it feels like a fabulous fashion marathon from the moment I wake up until my head hits the billow, uh, either very late at night or the early hours of the morning before the alarm goes off to start it all again.
1: I'm also very excited to highlight a couple of really incredible British fashion designers that we've had the great pleasure of doing business with. Simone Rocha and Erdem.
4: You know, I've always felt like you know, the most amazing canvas is in like London actually. It's it's the most amazing kind of backdrop.
0: I always feel like London has the best punk energy. Even if you're a young designer or you're an established house, it doesn't matter. It's all about your attitude.
1: London Fashion Week is such an important time of the year for us and really a lot of fun for our teams that get the chance to travel and see some incredible fashion shows. So we're going to bring a little bit of that excitement to you here through the Naughty Pod. So let's get into it. So as part of our London Fashion Week episode, I thought it'd be great to introduce you to Ricky Desole, who is our Women's Fashion Director. And you may say to yourself, listening at home, that sounds like a kind of awesome job. I'd like to know more about that. So I'm going to let Ricky talk about that. But Ricky, thanks so much for being on the Norty Pod.
2: Thanks, Pete. Happy to be here.
1: Let's start by... Give us a little bit of information about your background and what brought you to the place where, you know, we met and you ended up working at Nordstrom. It's been what, two years now?
2: It'll be two years in February. Okay. Um, my background, let's see, I grew up in fashion. Um, I was born in the U.S. I lived in Greenwich, Connecticut. And when I was 10 years old, we moved to Florence, Italy. And I grew up in... Okay, going to we'll
1: stop on that for a second. So was that traumatic? Like, I'm going to move to Italy from Connecticut? <laughs> so you my... got your friends, you got your situation there, and you're 10 years old.
2: My mom has saved the hate letter that I wrote her when she told us we were moving to Italy because I was so angry. It exists and she still has it in a book somewhere. I was so mad Uh, and we upped and moved to Italy and we thought we were going to move for one year. My dad had taken a job running the Gucci group um, and we ended up staying for five but I grew up in the 90s in Florence, Italy surrounded by fashion and I was hooked on fashion always. Um, I've loved it. I uh, Early on I was never allowed to skip school, but the one thing I was able to do was go to the fashion shows, but I was never allowed to sit at them. I worked backstage. Really? Yeah, yes, but I was so short that the only job they gave me was to tie the shoelaces for the models. <laughs> so I would tie the shoes together and i So look.
1: you're at the Gucci fashion show tying yeah. model shoes.
2: Tying model shoes, yes. Mm-hmm. And I was so enamored with the backstage and and watching the stylist and watching the hair and makeup. And I'll never forget, Kate Moss once looked at me and said, I used to have freckles like that when I was a kid. So I thought I was oh. going to look like Kate Moss when I grew up, which I don't, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so I was totally taken with it and always knew it's what I wanted to do. But um, I never studied fashion, but I spent my summers interning. And I interned at Vogue magazine uh, my junior year in college. And that was the internship that changed the course of my career. And I packed trunks for a summer. I think it was hundred degrees in New York, and I was basically you you packed
1: trunks. What's that mean?
2: Whenever there was a photo shoot, and they went through the racks, and they did the run-throughs with Anna, and they showed her the clothes. Anna went to her, right? Yes. My job was then to take the clothes and pack them into trunks, and then wheel them down to the shipping containers at the bottom of the Condé Nast building, and make sure they got to the shoot.
1: And so then from there, you ended up when you graduated from school, started working at Vogue. Was that what happened then?
2: I uh, my first job. At out of college i was a uh, freelance fashion assistant at Vanity fair i worked in a closet at four times square with no windows awesome <laughs> and i did the same thing i packed a lot of trunks <laughs> um but i met some of my closest friends to this day were other fashion assistants at the magazine i was there for about a year and then i got an opportunity to go to prada and work in the pr department and i left prada and i went to work at vogue And I thought I'd stay a year, and I ended up staying at Conde Nast for 12 years. And
1: so when we met, and I'm trying to remember what brought us together.
2: We met actually through Caroline Issa. Oh, that's right. Caroline Issa is a dear friend of mine, and she had a line for Nordstrom, I think. That's right. Uh, So she had said, you have to meet Pete Nordstrom. She talks so highly of her experience here. And I thought, well, that sounds like a good idea. And you all were opening the New York store at the time. And we went and had a coffee at yeah. a Starbucks.
1: Yes, I remember we had a hard time finding a place to have a coffee. And I think coffee. it was
2: downpouring rain. <laughs> yes,
1: I remember. Guy, <laughs> okay, you know, it reminds me listening to your background I kind of pinch myself, like, I can't believe you're working here. I mean, it's like you've got this really amazing background, done a bunch of incredible things. Why don't you talk a little bit about what your role is with Nordstrom as the women's fashion director?
2: Yes, there's a lot that goes into it. it might, I think my role always sounds very glamorous. It sounds very glamorous. <laughs> there are some not glamorous parts. In fact, a lot of it just came <laughs> in. I'm heading on a red-eye tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, big part of my role and one of the things I loved when I was working at Vogue that I get to do here is discovering young talent. So being first, really having my ear to the ground about new designers, um, whether they're coming up through the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund or through the British Fashion Council's New Gen Program. It's really understanding where fashion is today, but also about understanding where fashion is going. So in my role, I work very closely with our buying team, talking about trends, doing a lot of trend recaps. Both. And that's, and I'll mean, interrupt yeah. for a
1: second, but that's a job of influence because you don't literally write the orders. So, I mean, you know, don't. you have to have obviously cred- <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a nuance to the job that make, makes it complicated and it. It's why it's not easy for everyone because it's not a command and control thing. You've got to, you've got to affect things through influence and credibility.
2: I do. And there are and a lot of it, people to good. influence. Yeah, um. There are. <laughs> it's
1: a big company, yeah. Yeah,
2: so yes, working with the buyers and sort of wanting to find that balance of the art and commerce, and sometimes maybe pushing people a little outside of their comfort zone. And then also for me, learning maybe why some of those things that I'm pushing don't work. Yeah. But I do think taking out, you know, for my job, there's what I like and what I love. And obviously, I want to make sure we have things that I can buy here at Nordstrom that reflect my personal style, but I have to get out of that box. And also, you know, I love going to Fashion Week because I love looking outside the shows of what everyone's wearing. That's where I get most of my inspiration.
1: OK, so let's transition to really the theme of the show, and that's London Fashion Week. So you talk about what you do and, and how it all works. When our team goes to London, talk about what that is and what happens in a fashion week. I mean, you know, there's a version of it in New York because they have one. London has one. Milan and Paris. But since, you know, this episode's about London, Talk about what that what happens there.
2: I love London Fashion Week because it's the most fun of all the fashion weeks. Fashion can get very serious.
1: It can be serious, yes.
2: <laughs> but London's not serious. For me, London is the most creative of all the cities. You tend to find these sort of ideas repeat themselves. You see the same trends, you see colors emerging. But in London, it's like so in its own spot because the designers sort of aren't following the same direction as everyone else. I think a big reason for that is because they have so many fashion schools, central St. Martin's being the most famous and the biggest of them. So there is a, Pool of talent. Yeah,
1: talk about who went to that school to give people some reference, because some big sure. names have gone there. Well,
2: Alexander McQueen went yep. there. Who's probably the most famous name? Um, Simone Rocha went there. Meetum Kirchhoff. I mean, did Stella McCartney go I there? I think Stella went. I think she I'm went. Do some facts You're checking, but I believe okay. she did. But um, the biggest names in fashion coming out of London, for the most part, have gone through Central Saint Martins. So, so I think that's what's caused it. And then I think when big houses look for design talent, they look first to London because there is. So much rising talent, and new ideas. We're always looking for new ideas.
1: So, talk a little bit about on our side, on the buying side of it, how we spend our days sure. going from show to show and all that stuff, appointment to appointment.
2: They're busy. You sort of feel like you're just going around in circles all day long. Is <laughs> sitting in traffic, trying to get on the subway, but you can't find it. Um, so, our day really starts. The schedule is starts with the shows. So making sure that we're seeing the shows, and I love shows, and it's a big part of my role here, because you get the world of the designer. You're not just looking at the clothes, which are super important, but the mood of the room, the music that they're playing, the people that are in the front row, all of those are signals about who they wanna be as a brand and what they wanna say for the season. So I get into a room and that's, you know, it's looking around, it's taking in all of those cues that sort of suggest that that amplify the message of the season for them.
1: So, do you mean to tell me because I'm sitting in the front row, someone's looking at me, it's a cue for what's going on? There's no way.
2: <laughs> no, they're looking at you saying, is he good at what's he buying? It's like, who is that guy? You're <laughs> the he money here? in the room. I'm talking about the other side. <laughs> ah,
1: the other side. Yes, that's people should need to know that when the fashion show thing happens, there's all the retailers they kind of put next to each other. And then there's like Beyonce and
2: <laughs> on the other side those of the room.
1: People on the other side of the room. Yes. It's funny,
2: I say that to Sam. When we walk in, I sort of watch all because I'm an editor, so those for all my friends for so long, and I the, walk wait a in. minute.
1: The celebrities were your friends? No, no, no. The oh. editors, but oh. the editors
2: and celebrities sit in the same section. But I always walk in with them, and I at that point we get into the door, and I say, "Okay, bye," because they all go left <laughs> and I go right.
1: You're slumming it with us. <laughs> yeah. No, it's where
2: the power is. Um, so I think shows are super important on that front. And someone like Simone, you know, th- there's a lot of live performances in London, which is always fun. She had an Irish band play at her last show, and
1: yeah, I saw the I saw her show online. It was. It was great. So let's talk about. Okay, so, you know, we're putting this episode together. Who could we talk to that represent, you know, London Fashion Week from the designer point of view? And we picked Simone Rocha and Erdem. Talk about both those guys and, and why they're important you know, internationally, given what they do, and, and how they matter to Nordstrom, too.
2: I think the common denominator with both of them is that they're independent designers that have garnered an incredible amount of attention with their own resources. You know, you look at brands that um, sit in our stores, someone like Saint Laurent or Gucci. Those are big brands owned by big conglomerates. And what is amazing about Erdem and Simone is that they've been able to do it without the backing and the funding. Fashion shows are expensive. A lot of They've got to be. Them. That's
1: one thing that always runs through my mind. I'm sitting there and I, you know, because we do events here at the store, right. I have an idea what things right. cost. And like models and all uh, that stuff. It's amazing.
2: It's wild. So to be able to do that and be able to capture, you know, I think it's a catch-22 because if they don't do it, they don't get the marketing and the attention. And I think both of them, another common denominator is that they are both very true to their vision. So some designers... The wind blows in one direction, they go left, and then it goes in the other direction, and they go right. They have just stayed the course. So, Erdem, who is known for doing the most beautiful, often romantic dresses, you know, sometimes his silhouettes are poofy, sometimes they're streamlined, but it's still ultimately beautiful. He's a dress business. He's an occasion business. And he's he, a real
1: artisan. I mean, he's a dressmaker. Oh, he
2: is a dressmaker. and. But even when COVID hit and everyone was wearing sweatpants and jeans Mm -hmm. and all, you know, he didn't. It's not like he suddenly started making Erdem sweatpants. You know, he really.
1: They would have been fabulous sweatpants, I'm sure. They would have
2: been good. Very good. Actually, maybe, you know, we should drop that idea. But (laughs) I think he just didn't get swayed. And so when the world came back and everyone, you know, occasion dressing became a thing right out of the pandemic, he was there because he never shifted his course simone also so simone's sort of the darling of london she comes from a fashion family there are a few of us you know that we we learn from (laughs) our parents and we (laughs) and she's one of them um so her dad was a well-known designer and her mother her family works with her in the business and she came out of central saint martin started her business and she makes the most beautiful um olivia kim here uh, in Nordstrom is sort of the poster child for Simone Rocha so dressing. that Olivia
1: dress look that she always wears, that's a Simone Rocha that look. That is a
2: Simone Rocha look. Yes. Um, a big thing with Simone are the women that wear it and the community that she's built up. And you look at it and you think, I want to be a part of that community. And maybe if I buy this dress, I'm going to be.
1: So there's a cool factor there. Yeah, there's a cool. An co- aspirational thing, Totally. Right? Yeah. And then
2: she launched men's last year.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, so we picked up her first men's collection but again, how she's growing that, how she's thinking about her business, opening. She opened a store in New York. So, you know, you're starting to see her name more and more.
1: Well, look, at Ricky, I appreciate you taking some time to go through all that. I think it's really interesting what you do. and We love having you on the team. Again, I feel super fortunate that we get to work together. And, and since I'm heading over uh, to Europe here in a week or so, I'm going to see you there. We'll be in Milan and Paris together. You right? will see
2: me there. And Zurich. And Zurich for Acris. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean,
1: there's there's a lot going on. And, you know, for people that don't know exactly where we spend our times, there's a fair amount of time us like in a van <sighs> going from place to place, whether it's a meeting or an appointment with the brand or a fashion show and getting that, you know, the thing I really love is that 15, 20 minutes talking about whatever we saw, right, in the, in the van.
2: Best is when we don't agree, which happens quite it happens often. A lot. I think we leave a show, and I think it's amazing. You think it's terrible, <laughs> or the other way around. So. Yeah,
1: but my dad used to tell me all my taste is in my mouth, so you probably shouldn't trust my opinion on a fashion show.
2: <laughs> but it's fine. I think, you know, fashion is subjective at the end of the day, so it, I love walking out and sort of thinking, what do you think? You know, because we all pick up on different things.
1: Yeah, so it's, you know, it's you and me and Sam who's been on um, – the show and Olivia occasionally she's there she's been on the show and yeah it's all and I learn a ton because you know you're you're really close to it and it's it's really helpful for me to, to hear you and Sam just talk about what you like and what you're seeing so anyway it's a good team and I'm I'm glad to get to work with you guys so thank you and uh, thanks for being part of this episode
2: thank you Pete thanks so much.
1: So, Ricky, one of the things that happened here, so we said, okay, I'd like to have you on the podcast. And by the way, can you do an interview for me? So... Thank you so much for doing that. Always making me work. (laughs) Yes. We're adding to your uh, toolkit here with your experiences, but you're going to be talking with Caroline Rush, right? And talk about what she does there at London Fashion Week.
2: Uh, Caroline is the chief executive officer of the British Fashion Council. The British Fashion Council puts on London Fashion Week. So she's really the, the figurehead, but also the organizer of the week, pulling together the schedule, being the mouthpiece to all the press, to talk about what's happening for the week, pulling in notables, whether it's um, one time the Queen went to a Richard Quinn fashion show, but really being... What
1: happens when the Queen shows up at a fashion show? That's got to be a... People
2: lose their minds. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not, you know, I think putting on fashion weeks sounds glamorous and fun, but there's a lot of hard work that goes into, and her job is really to nurture that next generation of British talent.
1: Well, I look forward to hearing that. Thank you.
2: So I'm thrilled to be here with Caroline Rush, the CEO of the British Fashion Council, and learning more about what it takes, a little behind-the-scenes look at London Fashion Week and some of the names <laughs> that you're most excited about um, and certainly some of the brands that we have been partnered with at Nordstrom uh, for many years now. Fantastic. There's a lot of excitement around London this season. Um, I think Fashion Week, but sort of, I think for our audience, it'd be helpful just sort of understand what happens at Fashion Week. Um, obviously, fashion shows, but how much of it is show or sort of
3: extra events and presentations, how do you look at the week? Beyond the fashion shows, there are just a ream of presentations and events that happen in a city, whether that's exhibitions and the museums, local restaurants and fantastic cocktail bars hosting their own menus. To, of course, retail, which is for most of us is where Fashion Week lands and an opportunity to really think about our wardrobes. But I'm curious,
2: in your role, obviously knowing the breadth of Fashion Week, but your role specifically, what what
3: does the week look like for you? For me is that it starts really early. So for instance, Friday morning, which is the official start of Fashion Week, starts at 5am in the morning with Zoom calls with BBC and some of our other news channels here in the UK and international news channels as well as a way to to set the scene talk about what we've coming up what we're expecting to see but also talking about the landscape of the industry at large so you know what are the concerns what are the challenges what does the last quarter of the year look like which for retail is a really big moment so it's early mornings, a full day of shows, lots of media interviews and partner interviews along the way. And then we have a whole host of events in the evening. So it feels like a fabulous fashion marathon from the moment I wake up until my head hits the billow uh, either very late at night or the early hours of the morning before the alarm goes off to start it all again. They are long days indeed. <laughs> uh, you sort of mentioned the word, I'd be curious, you know, challenges. I have to imagine mm. that you've field some crazy calls throughout the week. Um, Oh, my gosh. So as an outsider, you probably imagine that the the selection of models for the show, which we call casting, have happened sort of months in advance, and you know who's going to be there. But realistically, they happen the week or a few days before the show happens. And that's because the audience of the shows, the models also travel from New York to London, to Milan, to Paris. So it's who's going to be in town, who they're going to be selected for. And you have, so we have 82 shows, 82 shows vying for a pool of models and it's who's available, who isn't, what are the, you know, what time do the models have to be there? Can they make X number of shows? So yes, is there are various calls to ask us to step in to see if we can try and get three models from one show to make sure they can do the show before and after. But this time last year, we uh, had the very sad news. that, Of course, the Queen Elizabeth II had passed away. And that was a whole other set of challenges because we had the funeral during London Fashion Week. We had a period of national mourning. We had brands that, that were very much aligned to our royal family that just weren't able to show during that period and I think that that was probably the most challenging of all that we've had to deal with so Everything is touching wood at the moment, uh, because we are hoping, we have like 24 hours to go, we are hoping that there will be no curveballs of that magnitude of challenge. And actually we'll have an opportunity to really, really celebrate our industry and our designers and the creativity that comes from that over the next few days. What
2: I love most about London Fashion Week is discovering new talent. And London is really known as a sort of breeding ground for newness and new design talent. Um, why do you think it's gotten that reputation?
3: It's absolutely got the reputation because of the art colleges that we have. Uh, Fashion here in most of our colleges is taught as an art. It's sort of part of uh, the art forms. And so it's about really pushing creative boundaries. And you see that in the collections coming through. We also see uh, individuals that have maybe studied somewhere else that Feel that they sort of are aligned to this, these values of boundary pushing creativity. And so they decide to come and start their businesses in London as well. So this has happened for decades and decades. And in fact, this. Year, we're celebrating 30 years of a program called New Gen, which famously supported a young designer called Lee Alexander McQueen to show his collection at the Ritz among a small group of designers uh, to American buyers, nonetheless, um, uh, back 30 years ago. That's right. And it's been fantastic to reflect on three decades and over 300 designers, young creative businesses that have been there pushing boundaries. And in fact, there is an exhibition at the Design Museum, which we launched uh, this week called Rebel, because it's that rebellious nature, I think, of young creative talent who are pushing boundaries and challenging the norms and all of the reasons why we love uh, the young creative talent coming through. So it's a, a fantastic opportunity to really get the sense of the diversity of the fashion community that we have in London. And I think on that note,
2: you know, what's amazing about London and some of the young designers that we stock, whether it's Simone, who's Simone Rocha, who we've been oh, with for a while, Simone. who's yeah. sort of become a tentpole <laughs> of London Fashion Week, but at one point in time mm. was considered emerging or someone like Erdem. What I love about London, and I have to give such kudos to you and, and the designers there, is it just feels that they embrace to your point, the creativity, the fun, the joy of fashion. You know, just to say it, I I think that that is what sets London apart and feeling that that
3: sense of optimism for the next generation, definitely. I think there's no predictability in London, is there? None. Um, that's a good. That's a good way and, of putting it. <laughs> and we love that because you go to a show and you never really know what you're going to get. And uh, and I think Erdem's a great example of that. You know, is that really beautiful collections, but whether it's at the National Portrait Gallery, inspired those by those fantastic galleries, or at the British Museum with the backdrop of just this stunning architecture and even if you get a sense before the show of what that inspiration is, is when you see the collections, you're just like, oh my God, how... Of course, is that. But how did you think about that? It's so clever, and uh, so I don't know much about Simone's upcoming show, but it is always an absolute delight. And I think again, is that as a female-led business, is that she knows how to dress women. You always feel fantastic when you're wearing the collections, and uh, the influence I think of her Irish roots always comes through. You know the fabrications, the shapes, uh, the music that she has is always incredible and you know when you think about the atmosphere created at shows is that sometimes it's the music that then evokes those memories of the collections and uh, I always get that at Simone's shows. So I guess I would sort of
2: wrap it up by asking what has been your proudest moment um, at the British Fashion Council in your time there?
3: Wow Um, I think it would be very odd of me not to say it was the moment that we rather quietly, got the Queen to London Fashion Week and surprised everybody. It was so incredibly special. Uh, and until the morning that happened, there were about six people that knew, which were myself, Sarah Moa, my assistant, Richard Quinn, the Queen, and the Queen's dresser.
2: <laughs> it was amazing. And I feel um, yeah. every designer, sort of everyone was looked at their phone. And it was an, a collective gasp when I think we all saw that picture. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us. This is so um, great to hear your perspective on the week. And we're You know, excited. I hope everything goes smoothly, and then that you get a vacation or
3: some time to rest when it all wraps up. Thank you so much. Yes, the morning after Fashion Week is finished, um, I am lucky that I get a little bit of time out. But of course, the press and buyers, and the models, and the casting directors move on to Milan. So we try and make sure that we look after everybody when they come to London, so that by the time they get to Milan, they hopefully are feeling that London has been good to them. The fashion circus continues. i
1: Right. So now we're really going to dive deep into, really, in a lot of ways, the essence of what our business is about, and that is the creativity and the innovation around fashion that compels people to buy new things. And so I'm really happy today to be talking to a couple of super talented fashion designers based out of London, Simone Roshaw and Erdem, who are two of the bright shining lights in the London fashion scene and part of London Fashion Week. So Simone, thanks so much for being on the Nordy Pub.
0: My pleasure.
1: Erdem, thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, absolutely. I'm Thrilled to do it. It's wonderful. So, you know, someone, I think maybe the best way to start is just, you know, in your own words, tell us a little bit about your background and what brings you to this place where you are now an acclaimed designer.
0: Well, I, I'm actually Irish. I'm half Irish, half Chinese. And I live in London and I my studio is here. And I came to London originally to study my, my master's with Louise Wilson in Central Saint Martins, which was incredible. And I actually set up my label once after I graduated due to an incredible uh, collaborative platform called Fashion East. And this was over a decade ago. And I've managed to build a wonderful team, a wonderful business. And continue to show in London today.
1: So, but you come at this, honestly, I mean, your dad's a designer.
0: Yeah, my dad is fashion designer. So, you've designer. been doing this
1: for a while. You've been around it for sure.
0: Oh, big time. Like, I was very fortunate that I kind of grew up in his studio, which I absolutely loved and felt really at home there. And yeah, until I was a teenager and then I went to go study fine art and then specialised in fashion. So, yeah,
1: it's definitely in my blood. So... Erdom, How long has it been since uh, you've been doing business with Nordstrom and we've known each other?
4: Oh, my gosh. It's been uh, over 10 years, I think. Um, it's been a long time. And also, actually, interestingly, in 2025, it's going to be my 20-year anniversary since I started the label. So I'm, I've been with Nordstrom for over over half of that time, which is, which is amazing. Why don't you give us a little bit of background
1: about you know where you've come from and and how you've got to this point where you you are now showing in London Fashion Week.
4: So my first name's Erdem, my family name is Moralioglu, which is a, a very long Turkish name, and I was born in Canada with my twin sister and then eventually moved to the UK, went to the Royal College of Art, I went to college in the UK, and then started the label a year after graduating. um, In 2005, I started, I was 27 when I started.
1: It seems like a young age to start your own label. Is that the typical trajectory for someone like yourself? That's okay. You you want to become a fashion designer. Isn't it usually you're working at other houses
4: and what have you before you can set out on your own? Yes. I mean, there's a lot of different, I think there's a lot of different paths you can take. I think it's interesting. I, I often wonder like if I was in my 40s and going to start a label, would I have had the guts to do it? Or do you have to kind of be at a certain age where you're half logical, half very irresponsible? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Was there some kind of expectations when you were growing up that you were gonna do this? I mean, the way it's articulated in a lot of ways when you read about you, it's almost like there's a family business element to this. Was there some level of expectation like, okay, you're gonna continue on in this creative tradition?
0: Yeah, it's weird because like I'm an independent label and I'm really proud of our independence, but we've built my label very much as a family business. And um, I've worked with my mother and my father along the way. But honestly, you can ask any of us, it was never the intention. We can't believe this is how it worked out.
1: <laughs> so if, if I was talking to the 14-year-old Simone Rocha, I was talking about what do you want to be when you grow up, what, what would you have said?
0: Oh, I probably like wanted to like run away with a band. Like I was really, <laughs> I was really hard to keep in the house when I was a teenager.
1: Can you talk about that a little bit in terms of what's informed your creativity and where you get inspiration and how you think about this. I mean, you think about it, you've got your dad, your mom, these are creative people doing stuff. You like music. Talk a little bit about the environment that is informs what you do.
0: Absolutely. And that was actually the biggest privilege of growing up where I did in Ireland is a really like, it's a magical place. You know, it's known for its storytelling, its landscape and the music, you know, it just felt like a really, playful authentic place to grow up and really free that mixed with the fact that my dad was from Hong Kong and I always felt like I was from two places and that contrast has always really inspired me and inspired my work and my collections. I definitely
4: think that there's a language that I've always had I've always been in particular really fascinated by storytelling and being able to say something through collections. You know, whether it's a Victorian botanist like Marianne North or Adela Stair or, you know, different interesting women from the past, from now, that almost help articulate an idea of, of what you're what you're trying to say. How do you think about you know, someone's lifestyle and how that informs what they wear. It's interesting. I think inevitably when you're thinking about her or them, they, the the person, I often find myself thinking about, okay, what would you wear when you wake up? What do you wear after work? What do you wear in the evening? In particular, I remember when we opened up the store, kind of, you know, thinking almost like forensically about her. My husband designed the store. He's and we were at college together, and he was studying architecture, and I was studying fashion, and we're trying to figure out, like, you know, what's the carpet that would be underneath her feet? What's the art that she would look at? What what furniture would she collect? And and y- you kind of think about her in that way.
1: So, as you're preparing to do a show for London Fashion Week. How do you think about really the canvas that is how you're gonna express your ideas and your thoughts in the form of a show?
0: I love the show. I think it is the best bit The prep is amazing. So like we're in show prep at the moment. So we're in show fittings. I'm talking to all my team, the hair, the makeup, the music. I was on a site visit yesterday. I've all mini sculptures of the set that we're going to do. You know, today was actually a really amazing day because we were fitting and we could see the first time the shoe, the sock the dress on the girl. Yeah, it's it's, it's amazing.
4: The most thrilling thing is when you try on something that's come in and you have a model come in for the casting, you know, you zip them into it, it fits beautifully and they bring it to life in a way that even you didn't expect equally you know there might be that one piece that just you try it on a million different people and it's just it's the most frustrating thing yeah, it? yeah i was uh,
1: gonna say the opposite has to be it, true <laughs>
4: yeah and it just doesn't it just you think it's gonna work and it just doesn't so it's you know there's a lot of being able to kind of adjust because the things that you often think are going to work sometimes don't and sometimes actually the things that you were sceptical about become the most beautiful thing.
0: With doing men's and women's, I kind of have one narrative of the collection and then it's that role of the man and the woman in that story and what they become and how they can seamlessly be shown together almost like a play you know i really almost treat it like it has a beginning middle and end like it could be a really intense 10 minute excerpt of a play
4: it's an amazing and sometimes quite a scary moment where it all comes together and You know sometimes it's like a little bit like a movie you can have a movie with the best actors and the best director and the best script and for whatever reason it just doesn't gel and sometimes you know it's an unknown director and unknown actors and it's the most magical thing so as the week progresses you know the the character kind of becomes clearer and clearer and, and on a practical level you really try to get a running order established and then eventually new york fashion week finishes and models start arriving. They fly from New York to London and you start kind of casting the movie in a way.
0: And London, because it's always been after New York, before Milan, I always feel like London has the best punk energy.
4: You know, I've always felt like you know, the most amazing canvas is in like london actually it's it's the most amazing kind of backdrop. So I've always loved the idea of showing in spaces that are very much about the city. So you know, when you have a space that you can use particularly outside, you you don't need too much actually in terms of production. You can be fairly light and and a show can kind of just happen.
0: It's the place that historically. Incredible people like Lee McQueen and John Galliano, Vivian Westwood. There's just this amazing energy that you can be whoever you want to be, and there's no kind of hierarchy, which is amazing. You know what I mean? There's even if you're a young designer or you're an established house like a, a Burberry, really, here it doesn't matter, it's all about your attitude.
1: Is that true amongst your peers and contemporaries that are designing that you guys are all kind of pulling for each other and respecting each other's, you know, individuality or is it a competitive thing?
0: No, honestly, there's so much respect. Like I'm really close with Craig Green. A lot of the younger designers, Cipolla Lawena, Sinead O'Dwyer, Robin Lynch, they come to my show. I'll go to their show. I'll go to Craig's show, Erdem, you know, it really, everyone here has their own identity so there it's easier to rub along with everybody because everyone's really content with their own voice
4: do you know it's funny i find i get very nervous at other people's shows. If I'm sat in the audience, whereas backstage, I think you can be much more relaxed. So I find, why is that? Um, why do you? Get- <laughs> I mean, I say I say relaxed in completely the wrong context because you're anything but relaxed at your own show. So I I retract that statement. But you know, when you find yourself sitting in a fashion show, oof.
1: So why is that
4: uncomfortable?
1: Is it because you know what goes into it, and there's all that effort and energy that comes at this moment so it's a big deal or why would you feel nervous about that that's interesting to me
4: yeah i think you just nailed it actually i think it's that idea of just being so aware of what goes into it and feeling inevitably feeling that kind of contagious you know nervousness that's probably happening backstage that you you know it's kind of particularly if you're at someone's show who you love you just you know you so want it to be the most amazing thing for them as well.
0: I also think London's amazing because people aren't too tired or jaded because they haven't done all the cities. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know if people fully appreciate it. And mean, that's, in some ways, it's the glamorous side of what people think the fashion business is. But to your point, there's the New York shows, mm-hmm. then there's London, and then there's Milan, and then there's Paris. And if you think about our buying teams, they go from one to the other we have like buying and merchandising teams that are away from home for like 3 weeks at a time i mean it's it is a yeah. slog
0: it's hardcore like it is
1: hardcore i mean i'm always super impressed by how hard our teams work and they're they're sincere passion for it. I mean, they're doing it for more than just a paycheck. They're, they like this stuff. They're into it.
0: No, you have to love it. And that's from all sides, whether you're designing it, you're writing about it, you're buying it. It's not even that you have to love everything. You know what I mean? I think it's about loving, finding the things that you love, finding things that you hate, you know, and seeing how they make you feel.
1: For you, how you define success when you, you know, have a show like this and
4: at this stage in your career, I'm just curious how you define success. It's, um, it's a good question, Pete. <laughs> I, I feel, you know, to me, success is when, when you feel like everything you were trying to say in that given moment, you said beautifully. And if that has happened in those 10 minutes that you, you have the show, then that to me feels like success. I also think reviews are a funny thing. I really, I really make a point of, of not reading reviews and trying to not read reviews. to Fill out my other half. Often if he like reads a really good one, he'll force me to, he'll, you know, he'll read it to me. He'll be like, you need to listen to this. This is very good. But I try <laughs> it as a point. If I don't read them, then you don't, it means you don't really read the good ones, the bad ones, or the tepid ones. You know, you can just kind of carry on. And if If you're happy in yourself with what you've done, then that's great.
1: Do you think it's difficult when you talk about being independent? I also think about just the realities of the business we're in, and that is how LVMH and Caring are such large and dominant forces in that kind of commercial designer business. How have you figured out how to navigate and find your place? I mean, it's got to be super challenging because it's wildly competitive.
0: It is competitive, and that's that's the one thing that sometimes... Is really tricky because the way the fashion system works is everybody's different you know whether you're really big or you're really small or you're independent or you're part of a group or you're a creative director but we all show at the same time with all completely different resources you know and that for me is the real challenge but also that's the achievement that you can be in those conversations like that is also the the ultimate achievement.
4: I think independence is really interesting because in a way, you know, you do have so many limitations, but within those limitations, you find solutions, you find different ways of, of working. You know, when I started in London, I was told I'd never have a store in London. I'd never be able to do that independently. My first collection in particular was like a very like kind of romantic, feminine collection at a time when London was like black PVC kind of. Clubware. It was very like I was, it was, you know, from the beginning, it always felt like I was slightly against the grain of that moment. But You know, if you have a language and if you have something to say and if you have belief in what you're what you're doing, then, you know, inevitably you find your feet and you find your way. I think if you have that, then whether or not you're in the same milieu or world as bigger entities, you know, you can you can stand on your own two feet and do it in your own way. So how do you feel
1: about the way that creativity and commerce are either working together or in conflict with each other. I mean, is that something you have to navigate with your business? Because at the end of the day, it is a business. So you, there is a commercial element, too.
0: Exactly. Like, it's a it's a reality. Like, I think you have to embrace it. Like you're saying, it is, it is a business. And that doesn't mean sacrificing design or ideas. It's just a different discipline, which over time... Honestly, now I get a kick out of it, you know, because it has to be done. So there's no point fighting it, you know, it's about making it work for you. But I've always been really fortunate that I have a really fabulous community of customers. I'm really, really lucky that over the years, people really love coming in the store, love going into the stores. And, you know, I make clothes that I feel something and I think that translates into clothes that then people feel something, and that's what we 're all looking for to feel something you know i don 't make clothes just for the look of them you know it's really when someone wears it, they feel something
1: look you 're really nice to spend the time with me today and give us a little bit insight of what it's like you know from your side as being a brand and a designer and And coming into a fashion week and and everything that goes with that, I I will tell you, um, I have a sample size of one around my house. My wife's a fan there. I see a lot of your clothes in my house. So uh,
0: amazing. Yeah. You know what? That brings me immense joy. Thank you
1: and I I've, I've done several of these things and I think the authenticity and the sincerity of how you express yourself through the creative process I, it's it's an angle that you know at least for this podcast it always doesn't come through it's a lot of it's more the commercial side of how this all works but it's really nice to hear about the genesis of where this all comes from and the purity of what that is in terms of that creative process so i i really appreciate you talking about that today
4: no thank you well honestly it's such a pleasure and i'm i i really appreciate all of your incredible support and you've been supportive for such a long time so i'm looking forward to coming back to seattle well we'd love to have you here we're,
1: we're a fan and everything and uh so we'll be definitely be seeing each other again but thanks so much for doing this and and best of luck with uh, your show at london fashion week thank you so much i'll see you in paris yeah great i'll see you then cheers Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to The Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing, too. For more information about the show, head to Nordstrom.com slash Nordy Podcast, or follow us on our Instagram page at The Nordy Pod to stay up to date on new episodes, announcements, and more. We'd also really like to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you receive great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can even give us a call and leave a voicemail. And you just may get a chance to talk to me personally on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy, drop us a line, and be part of the Pod. And make sure to tune in next time as I introduce an extremely talented group of individuals whose sole purpose is to ensure the success of our company. Join us for part one of a two-part series all about the Nordstrom Board of Directors.
3: You have a lot of smart, experienced people that have amazing career experience that I respect that I have learned a lot from as individuals.
1: I became the CEO of Pathmark, became the CEO of Starbucks, and then ran extended stay hotels, and then finished where I started at Albertsons when I was called back to basically run that company. I
4: had been working for Nike, running their retail in the Asia Pacific, and was also the Chief Merchandising Officer for Target. And then was asked to head up Bed Bath & Beyond.
3: I work for Google. I'm the Chief Accounting Officer and Corporate Controller.
2: I spent several years at Google as an executive. I Ran TaskRabbit. I was the CEO of TaskRabbit.
4: I met Intuit. And for those who may not know, uh, Intuit is the maker of uh, TurboTax, QuickBooks, MailChimp, Credit Karma.
2: I've been at American Express. It's a crazy number, but
0: for 34 years.
4: Wow. I would show up at like these summits and I would be the speaker and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm Eric Sprunk. I have a bachelor of science in accounting and I run literally like innovation design product merchandising for Nike. And you can just see people in the audience go. No, no way. There's that. That's, that can't be right.
3: Honestly, being on the
1: Northern board, doing what I'm doing with the Boy Scouts, having being blessed the way I was at Alaska Airlines—they're all things that sort of add richness to your life and make your life more interesting. It's all good. In part one, you're going to learn about exactly what it is that a board of directors does, and why we've chosen these particular individuals to help us succeed. And believe me, this is an impressive group of people. So join us next time on the Nordy Pod.